Good morning. My name is Sylvia. The Old Testament reading is found in Leviticus 11, 1 through 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, These are the creatures that you are allowed to eat from the land animals. You can eat any animal that has divided hoofs, completely split, and that rechews food. But of animals that rechew food and have divided hoofs, you must not eat the following. The camel, though it rechews food, it does not have divided hoofs, so it is unclean for you. The rock badger, though it rechews food, it does not have divided hoofs, so it is unclean for you. The hare, though it rechews food, it does not have divided hoofs, so it is unclean for you. The pig, though it has completely divided hoofs, it does not rechew food, so it is unclean for you. You must not eat the flesh of these animals or touch their dead bodies. They are unclean for you. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is David. The New Testament reading is from Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Welcome the person who is weak in faith, but not in order to argue about differences of opinion. One person believes in eating everything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Those who eat must not look down on the ones who don't, and the ones who don't eat must not judge the ones who do because God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servants? They stand or fall before their own Lord, and they will stand because the Lord has the power to make them stand. One person considers some days to be more sacred than others, while another considers all days to be the same. Each person must have their own convictions. Someone who thinks that a day is sacred, thinks that way for the Lord. Those who eat, eat for the Lord, because they thank God. And those who don't eat, don't eat for the Lord, and they thank the Lord too. We don't live for ourselves, and we don't die for ourselves. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to God. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Martha. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Mark 7, 17 through 23. After leaving the crowd, he entered a house where his disciples asked him about that riddle. He said to them, don't you understand either? Don't you know that nothing from the outside that enters a person has the power to contaminate? That's because it doesn't enter into the heart, but into the stomach and goes out into the sewer. By saying this, Jesus declared that no food should contaminate a person in God's sight. It's what comes out of a person that contaminates someone in God's sight, he says. It's from the inside, from the human heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual sins, thefts, murders, adultery, greed, evil actions, deceit, 
unrestrained immorality, envy, insults, arrogance, and foolishness. All these evil things come from the inside and contaminate a person in God's sight. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather as your people and to hear your work. We pray that you would open our ears to hear, that you would open our minds to understand, and that you would then ignite our hearts with holy love, that this time together might deepen our affection for you, and that as that deepens, you would also deepen our affection for one another and for those who have yet to experience the goodness of your grace. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Okay, I have to ask, just because I was chuckling to myself during the service, did anybody else start thinking about the movie Hook as we kept saying re-chewed food and reading that Leviticus passage? Nobody? Okay, it was just me then. There's this line in the movie Hook where there's like insulting, they're sending insults back to one another, and somebody calls somebody else a rude, crude bag of pre-chewed food dude. Um, And so it just made me think of that. Uh, That was completely random and sidebar. Um, Sorry about that. So in the late 90s and early 2000s, I served as a youth pastor in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And if you were a youth pastor in the late 90s, early 2000s, there were two things that were pretty much guarantees about your life. One, if you were a youth pastor and you were also male, then there was a 97% chance that you had a goatee. Um, It was sort of like the youth pastor name badge. Um, so that I think it was for parents of teenagers when they walked into a room like this, they could just kind of survey the crowd, find the one dude with the goatee and think, oh, he's probably the youth pastor. Uh, let's go talk to them. Uh, the 3% of people who didn't um, did so for a variety of reasons. For me, I didn't have a goatee because I couldn't grow one. <laughs> it was just that part of puberty just kind of like skipped its course. And uh, so what I had to do is I had to overcompensate for the fact that I couldn't have a goatee. So I bleached my hair, pierced my ears, and I preached barefoot. Um, yeah. Then I got married, went to seminary, and now this. <laughs> it's just the, the evolution that happens along the course of time. The second thing that was pretty much a guarantee if you were a youth, a youth pastor around that time is that you had to be ready to answer questions about Harry Potter. That there was something about this fictitious boy who lived in the cupboard under the stairs that had caused quite a frenzy in the church. Uh, that there was due to sort of the phenomenon of Potter, you know, kind of crossing the pond and hitting the United States, that there was uh, three general reactions. One is that there was a group of people who became, who were fully pro-Potter. They were like Potter evangelists inside of the church. Uh, There were others who wore wore like anti-Potter buttons to church, uh, and there were just really, really uh, upset about what was happening. And then there was this whole other group that was oblivious. They're like, who's Potter? <laughs> like, just have no clue what's going on. Uh, but what we saw happen in the midst of the conversations is that there were significant divisions that would come up between parents and teenagers, between parents and other parents in terms of parenting approaches, uh, and even teenagers with other teenagers as they were trying to figure out what to do with this. Those who were on the pro-Potter side of things were like, this these books are fantastic. They are the like next 
Chronicles of Narnia, the next Lord of the Rings. They have all of these beautiful, redemptive themes. They're well-written. They're funny. And reading them allows us to have conversations with people who are outside of the faith about the redemptive themes and images inside of these books. And there were others, on the other hand, that were saying, no, 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 wait a minute. Like, Harry Potter is about witchcraft and wizardry, and this is a slippery slope uh, from here into a life in the occult. And there was all of this kind of tension around these books and serious debates among well-meaning, Jesus-loving people. And this is not uncommon in the history of the church. We frequently find ourselves in these kinds of conversations with one another. And we can think back about the conversations that we've had with other Christians about Halloween, Uh, those who dress up and those who turn their lights off. And we have conversations about this with yoga. There are those who do and those who don't. There are conversations like this in the church about the Enneagram, those saying, oh, I've just learned so much about myself through this, and others saying, that just looks creepy. I don't really want to mess with that thing at all. There's even been conversations about this around things like worship styles, right? Where some would say that having drums and guitars in church is about as sacrilegious as you can get because we need to just have choirs and hymnals and pipe organs. And we have these well-meaning debates among people who absolutely love Jesus. And what I want us to explore together today is what do we do with that? What do we do when we have different convictions about how to be faithful to Jesus? What do we do in the midst of these kinds of conversations? Well, my name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at New Life Downtown. Our lead pastor, Glenn Packiam, is up at New Life North today, uh, preaching up there. So I have the opportunity to be here with you all. If this is your first, second, third, or early kind of time here at New Life, we want you to know that whatever you look like and whatever your life has been like, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are welcome here amongst this group of people. We're in the midst of a sermon series through the Paul's letter to the church in Rome, this book called Romans. We're in our 15th week, actually, and focusing in today on these passages in Romans chapter 14. This book was written by this early follower of Jesus who was living in Corinth around 57 AD, and he's writing to those who are gathered in Jesus' name in the city of Rome, in the capital of the Roman Empire. Paul has yet to go and visit the church, but he's writing this letter to them in preparation for coming to visit. And the church that he's writing to is incredibly divided amongst itself. He's writing, actually, probably to try to broker some kind of reconciliation between two distinct groups in the church whose division amongst one another has gotten so severe that it's likely that they are no longer eating together or worshiping together. So here's what happened in the church. What happened was that in the day of Pentecost, when there's this first kind of movement of people post-Jesus' resurrection coming to believe in Him after the Holy Spirit empowers the church, there were Jews there from Rome who went back and began meeting together and worshiping Jesus in Rome. But then as it happened every single place, the gospel of Jesus extended beyond the Jewish community and Gentiles began to accept Christ. 
And now these two groups who previously hated one another, like Patriots and Broncos fans, are trying to figure out how is it that we now live together in light of who Jesus is. And right as they're kind of starting to figure that out, there becomes this debate amongst Jews in the the city of Rome. And the emperor decides that the best way to solve this is to kick all the Jews out. So now you had a church that was all Jewish, that became Jewish and Gentile, is now all Gentile because all the Jews have been asked to leave Rome or forced to leave Rome. <laughs> then there's a new emperor, because this happens in the empire. Uh, a new emperor comes up and he says, no, 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 Jews, you can come back. And so they come back, and now you have a church that's both Jewish and Gentile again. And there are all of these divisions that come up. And they're really kind of the center or the core of their divisions is the, gen- the Jews are saying, hey, listen, we were here first. Like, this is kind of our deal. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Jesus, he's ours. Jesus is Jewish, we're Jewish, this is our thing, and you're just kind of getting to come along. And the Gentiles are saying, no, 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 wait a minute. Like, most of you all didn't accept Jesus. In fact, there's more of us than there are of you, therefore, maybe you should think about the fact that you've actually been replaced. And we now are God's people, and you get to tag along with us. And throughout this book, Paul is systematically dismantling both groups' pride and saying, no, 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 this isn't about either one of you. This is about Jesus and how he's brought you together. And at various points in the the letter, we see that there are these particular flare-ups, major issues that are causing problems in the community. And that seems to be at the center of a lot of those conversations are the things that would kind of marks someone out culturally as distinctively Jewish. What are the things that have come to be kind of the center of Jewish identity? Namely, circumcision, dietary laws, and Sabbath. So the circumcision of children, whether or not we eat food that's clean or unclean, and the setting aside of the, sixth, of the seventh day of the week, Saturday, as a special or holy day. And the Jews are saying, no, we need to continue to do these things as followers of Jesus. And the Gentiles are saying, well, that's silly. You need to stop doing those things. And we begin to see some wrestling and divisions particularly come up around those. So in chapters 2 and 4 of Romans, Paul addresses circumcision. And then here in chapter 14, he actually begins to center in on dietary laws and on Sabbath. What do we do about food and about holidays? Which is a good time to talk about right around Thanksgiving time, those two things. So he begins this portion of the letter and he says this. He says, welcome the person who is weak in faith, but not in order to argue about the differences of opinion. One person believes in eating everything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Those who eat must not look down on those who don't, and the ones who don't eat must not judge those who do, because God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servants? They stand or fall before their own Lord, and they will stand because the Lord has the power to make them stand. One person considers some days to be more sacred than others, while another person considers all the days to be the same. Each person must have their own convictions. So we see here is there's two groups. You have one group who sees all days and all food as created equal. That there is no difference between uh, pork and beef 
and there's no difference between Friday and Saturday. They're all the same. Eat what you want, do whatever you want on every single day of the week. There is no distinction between the two of these. And the other group is saying, well, no, some food is clean, other food is unclean, like McDonald's and Taco Bell. Like, you shouldn't eat these kinds of things. And this is not just every day being the same, but there is a distinction between this. The first group is probably primary Gentile. The second group, who thinks that some days are holy and that some food is clean or unclean, is probably primarily Jewish. But what their disagreement is about here is about the role of the Mosaic Law, things in the Old Testament, as they relate to the Christian life. That's what their debate is about. Sometimes when people talk about this passage, they make the debate about something else. This is about two groups of people, one who we could say is lawful and another group that is lawless. Not in terms of like just free reign, but a group saying, we need to try to fulfill the law of Moses, and another group saying, no, we don't need to do much with that at all. This is not a conversation about the sinful and the sinless. This is not a conversation about sin. This is a conversation about convictions as it relates to devotional practices and how it is that we live out faithfulness to Jesus. That's a key distinction in thinking about this text. So this is a conversation about that, not about moral relativism, not about like, oh, I just feel okay doing all of these kinds of things. In fact, it's really clear in the previous chapter that there are some things that Paul condemns for the Christian community as a whole. It says very clearly that Christians should not be given over to gluttony and to drunkenness and to sexual immorality. So this is not just sort of like a permission-giving kind of chapter, but this is talking about differences of conviction, devotional differences for people. We see this really clearly in verse 6. He says, someone who thinks that a day is sacred thinks that way for the Lord. Those who eat, eat for the Lord because they thank God. And those who don't eat, don't eat for the Lord. And they thank God too. So these are things that people inside of the community, inside of the church, are doing for God, not for themselves. These are things that they're doing to express their faithfulness, to demonstrate their commitment, to show themselves and present themselves to God, saying, we want to follow you, we want to serve you, we want to give our lives to you. These convictions are expressions of their commitment to Christ. The convictions are not the problem. Pride is the problem. Their pride in those convictions is where the problem lies. See, what's happening is that those who indulge look down on those who don't. And they say, aren't you guys all kind of being a little bit silly here? Like, don't you know that there's freedom in Christ? So stop being so legalistic and just come on and join the party. Have some bacon. (laughs) Stop being all bent out of shape about good breakfast. And the other group is saying, no, 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 wait a minute. And they're looking at those who indulge, those who abstain are looking at those who indulge, and they're judging them. And they're saying, you're actually being quite sacrilegious and very dangerous right here. Because that's not just meat. That may be unclean meat. And not only is it unclean meat, it may be meat that was offered at a temple and sacrificed to another god. How dare you put that in your body? Your body's the temple of the Lord. Why would you do that? 
And it's not just Saturday, it's Sabbath. This is the day that God gave us as a gift. Receive it with joy and do something different. Stop working. And there's this debate in the midst of all of this. But the debate, again, is about devotional differences. And what Paul is saying here is that our convictions are actually good. We should have convictions about how to live faithfully to Jesus in every aspect of our life. There shouldn't be any aspect of our life where we're not thinking about what does it mean to live out the Jesus way in this area. Every area should be something that the, the light of the gospel is being shed on, even things like our eating. So the convictions are good. We should have them. But what he's saying is that our convictions should be expressions of our faithfulness, not sources of pride or division. Our convictions should be expressions of our faithfulness, not sources of pride or division. So what Paul is going to go out and do in this entire chapter is he is going to encourage these two groups, Jews and Gentiles, or all of us, to accept one another without setting aside our convictions or asking others to set aside theirs. He's talking to both groups here about what it means to welcome one another in Christ. In 14.1, he says, welcome those who are weak in the faith. He uses the word weak there actually not as uh, sort of a pejorative way against the group that's not eating. He's actually using the word weak to expose the other group's pride. Because they hear that and they go, yeah, 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 they're weak. And then he comes back around and hits them too. And says, see, you've got a problem here. And he ends the whole passage by saying, welcome one another. So this is about bringing these two groups together, teaching them what it means to accept one another without setting aside their convictions or asking others to set aside theirs. See, for Paul and for us, we have to realize that our unity, we realize our unity in Christ through hospitality and not through homogeneity. We realize our unity in Christ through hospitality, not through homogeneity. Not through being like everybody else or making everybody else like us. But there is beauty in the difference of the body that actually puts God's glory on display. But unfortunately, when we oftentimes think about Christian churches, communities, and groups, they're predominantly homogenous. That we oftentimes sort of sequester ourselves into groups by race or ethnicity or gender or socioeconomic status or marital status, or between those who have kids and don't, who don't have kids, and at times even between our convictions. Jesus is saying through this passage, through Paul, that I have brought you all together in Christ, that our unity is not based on these things, but our unity is actually found in Jesus, that we all, regardless of our convictions, are made in the image of God. We're adopted as his sons and daughters. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're brought together in his family, and we're commissioned to take the gospel into the world. That's where our unity is found. It's found in those things he says. So accept one another on those terms, not trying to be just like one another. But the question, of course, how do we do that? Because that's not easy. The easiest thing for us to do is to welcome those who are just like us. That's the easiest thing for us to do. So how is it that we welcome 
those, how do we welcome one another when our convictions differ from one another? And so he's got a couple of things here that I think are really helpful for us in the conversation. The first thing that Paul says is to let God be God. So what happens in our lives is when that the Spirit deals with us and convicts us about something, teaches us something, or shows us something, or calls us to live in a particular way, what happens is that our convictions really quickly become passions, right? We become very passionate about the very thing that the Spirit has been teaching us and showing us and calling us to. We make the mistake often when we assume that what is true for us should be true for everybody, and it should be true for everybody right now, that they should share our convictions in this very moment. And it turns into we start judging one another or looking down on each other. And Paul says this, he says, but why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you look down on your brother and sister? We will all stand in front of the judgment seat of God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God, not to one another. So stop judging each other. He's telling us, he said, don't look down on each other for the things that each other are doing for the Lord. There's a tendency for us to do this, to judge each other's convictions, to judge each other's opinions, to judge each other's expressions of faithfulness, and to look down on them and to say, oh, that's kind of quite silly, or to look at it and be like, ah, I think you're off there. I think you're wrong and to begin to do that in the very things that people are doing for the Lord. When uh, my wife and I were uh, dating, we went through 14 weeks of pre-engagement counseling. Uh, it tells you how healthy our relationship was at that point. Uh, we had been dating for a while, had a massive breakup, got back together, and as we were thinking about kind of moving toward marriage, we realized that we really needed some help. Um, so we did 14 weeks of pre-engagement with a professional counselor. Uh, in the midst of all of that, I remember at one point, really distinctively, him just kind of looking at us and said, one of the things that you're going to need to learn is that you cannot be the Holy Spirit in each other's life. You're going to want to be. You're going to want to be over and over and over and over and over again, but you can't be. See, here's the thing is that there are certain times where we're in relationship with people, either a spouse or a friend or a family member or a coworker or a neighbor or a fellow classmate, somebody that we're in relationship with, and we want them to share a particular kind of conviction because if they did, it would just make our life a little bit easier. It's like, oh, I think the Lord really wants to deal with you about this, and He really wants to deal with you now. And since you're not listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, I will then therefore go ahead and step in and let you know exactly what it is that He is trying to teach you and show you right now because you're too dense to listen. And we begin to start sort of forcing our agenda onto people's lives. But the Spirit doesn't work that way. The Spirit meets us right where we're at and begins to deal with us with the things that He considers to be the most important right then and there. And that's different for all of us. He convicts one person of this thing here and another person here, and it begins to, in the way that only He lovingly can, guide us into what it means for us to look more and more and more like Jesus. But we want to do the end around so many times and begin to take our convictions, the things that we've learned, the things that we've realized, and begin to kind of force them on other people, regardless of whether or not that's what Jesus wants to talk with them about right then and there. 
Now, this doesn't mean that we don't make moral judgments. This doesn't mean that we don't condemn sin. We are called, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to speak the truth in love to one another. And when there is something that is clearly going on in one another's life that is clearly sin and is clearly destructive to that person, to their relationships, and to the community, the loving thing to do is to speak up. But Paul is not talking about those things here. Those get addressed elsewhere, where Jesus even tells us to judge a tree by its fruit, to look at what someone's life is producing and to be able to call it for what it is, to be able to call things right, right, and wrong, wrong, and good, good, and evil, evil. There's a time and a place for that. That's just not what this conversation is. This conversation is about people who are living their lives faithfully for Jesus and just maybe not doing so the way we want them to and wanting them to go in a different direction or do the very things that we are to have the same convictions that we have at that particular place and time when the Spirit may not want to deal with them in the same way He's wanted to deal with us. So the first thing is to let God be God. The second thing is to pursue peace instead of picking fights. We love picking fights and having these kind of conversations. So what happens is is that we not only, when we are passionate about a certain conviction, we not only want to share our conviction, we want people to share our convictions. We don't just want to share them with others. We actually want them to have the same ones. And what happens is that very quickly our sharing moves to convincing, and very quickly our convincing moves to confronting, right? And so what was just trying to share about our life with Jesus, what He's teaching us and showing us, suddenly becomes we're going to confront everybody about that very thing that, you know, six weeks ago we didn't know anything about (laughs) because we hadn't thought about it until the Spirit brought it up uh, for us. I remember the most clear example I can think of this for me was uh, my first kind of couple months in seminary. When I was a youth pastor, uh, I was continually in Bible studies with high school students and encouraging high school students to ask questions. And they would ask these profound, brilliant questions that I would have absolutely no answer to. And so then I would go and I'd try to do as much study as I could with my like, youth ministry degree and study and read books and commentaries. And frequently I'd find myself like looking at these different books or these different commentaries and this person saying this and this person saying this and this person saying this. I'm like, I, I don't know. Because all of the arguments were based on Greek and Hebrew. And I didn't know Greek and Hebrew. So I was like, I, I don't know what to tell the students. And the longer that this happened for me, I became deeply convinced that I needed to go to seminary and really wanted to go to seminary in order to learn biblical languages which turns out that I was in the vast minority of people at seminary that this is why they were showing up there. But I remember going to my first day of Hebrew class, and I was totally nerding out. I, was, I got there like 10 minutes early. I sat in the second row, because the first row was really uncomfortable for me. Like, I'm a back row person, so second row is I'm, I'm leaning in. And there's a couple of guys that came down and sat next to me, and they began to have this conversation about how stupid they thought this class was and how they shouldn't have to take this. And hasn't the seminary realized that people don't need biblical languages anymore? And then they looked at each other and they said, hey, here's what you have to remember. A C equals an MDiv. We just have to pass. We don't need to learn anything. And all sorts of wrath just like started to boil up inside of me. 
as I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, this class is so important. This is why we're here. We need to learn these things. What is wrong with you? I can't believe you're going to be a pastor. Like, that, I mean, this was my reaction. And of course, you know, very gently over the course of time, the Lord began to reveal to me that those folks are going to pastor in ways that I never will. And that they'll be able to love their, conversation, their congregations in ways that will be really hard for me. And that there are thousands and hundreds of thousands of faithful pastors who love and care for their congregations and they don't know Greek and they don't know Hebrew. That that was a conviction that I had. But I wanted to make it everybody else's. But the conviction had become a source of pride and a place of division rather than just an expression of my faithfulness to what I felt like God was calling me into. So we need to pursue peace rather than pick fights. He goes on and he says, welcome the person who's weak in faith, but not in order to argue about differences of opinion. So we oftentimes welcome one another for the wrong reasons. Our hospitality can never be a strategy for persuasion. Hospitality amongst Christians should always be a sign of peace, an expression of unity not an opportunity for trying to convince someone to hold our opinion. He goes on, he says, let's strive for the things that bring peace and the things that build each other up. Don't destroy what God has done because of food or anything else. All food is acceptable, but it's a bad thing if it trips someone else up. It is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that trips your brother or sister. Keep the belief that you have to yourself. It's between you and God. People are blessed who don't convict themselves by the things they approve. See, sometimes in our lives, pursuing peace requires that we remain silent. And that feels really odd for us in a culture that sort of celebrates authenticity and being real. That being quiet about things feels like, well, we're not, I'm not being myself then. I'm not being real. I'm not being authentic. This isn't about authenticity and integrity. This is about sensitivity and care. This is about saying that this person and their relationship with Jesus matters more to me than anything else. And therefore, I'm going to be sensitive to them and care for them, even if it means that I'm quiet about something else that I'm passionate about or that I'm convicted about or that's really deep and true to my heart. I think we can think about this as we come into Thanksgiving week, and many of us are going to find ourselves around tables with family or friends that maybe we don't find ourselves around tables with very often. And part of the reason that maybe we don't eat together all that often is because there's been some sort of rift in the relationship. At times, that rift can be kind of come from a difference of opinion about something. And there are places where we're called to sit at a table and be quiet to hold things close, and to know that our unity is found in something else. It's not found in homogeneity. It's found in Christ. And so it's okay to be quiet about those things. Now, there are other times that we then wait for an opportunity to have the conversation rather than forcing it upon other people. The third thing he says is that sometimes, or the third thing he recommends that we do is that we seek to build up rather than to trip up. That we seek to build up rather than trip up. See, hospitality is intended to create a space for us where we encourage one another toward faithfulness. 
May we encourage one another to be faithful to Jesus, whatever we feel like that looks like. It's not a space for us to fault others or to flaunt our freedoms. And it's certainly not a place to force our convictions upon other people. It's not what hospitality is. Since instead, this is what you should decide. Never put a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of your brother or sister. I know and I'm convinced in the Lord that nothing is wrong to eat in and of itself. But if someone thinks it's wrong to eat, it becomes wrong for that person. And if your brother or sister is upset by your food, you are no longer walking in love. Don't let your food destroy someone for whom Christ died. And don't let something you consider to be good be criticized as wrong. Now, the food example might be a little bit of a stretch for us, but maybe we can bring it a little bit closer to home and say that this is true oftentimes in conversations around alcohol. That there are Christians who find freedom in Christ and feel like it's okay to have a glass of wine with their Thanksgiving meal. But there are others who've come from uh, uh, alcoholic families whose mom or dad or brother or sister, their life was torn apart by alcohol and their family was torn apart by alcohol. There are others who've struggled with alcohol in their own lives, who identify themselves as alcoholics, and they are trying and need to stay as far away from that as possible. They're in recovery. And if we're not sensitive to those stories and to those experiences from other people, and we just simply take the freedom that we have and flaunt it before others, we're not being sensitive and caring. We're not walking in love. The same thing can be true for entertainment. That there are some people who find freedom to be able to watch uh, movies that may have an incredible amount of violence, that may have maybe what others would consider to be crude or coarse humor, that may be people who have really no kind of negative impact from watching movies that are filled with like uh, suspense or scary movie kinds of things. But we have to recognize that there are people all around us who are dealing with PTSD from their time in the military. And so a violent movie for them is something different than what it is for us. Or we might find that there are people who have been subject to sexual harassment in the workplace or in school, or they've been sexually abused in some way. And so those jokes that you think are funny are not funny to the other person. They actually are quite painful. And there are other times that maybe people have experienced kind of intense fear in their life. They struggle with anxiety. They have a hard time sleeping at night. And so that movie to them is not neutral. That movie is something that has a deep impact on them. And if we're not sensitive to those kinds of things in our life together, we're no longer walking in love. We're no longer acting as brothers and sisters in Christ should and would with one another. We have to keep our convictions but not force them upon others or ask them to set aside their own. See, when we force our convictions upon others, we are no longer walking in love. When we prioritize ourselves instead of our brother and sister in Christ, our convictions actually no longer please Jesus. Something has gone awry. It says in verse 17 that God's kingdom isn't about eating food and drinking. These are not where we place the priority, but about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so whoever serves Christ this way pleases God 
and gets human approval. So we have to remember that God's kingdom is remarkably bigger than our convictions. And God's people matter way more than our principles. And God's people matter way more than our convictions. And so he says at the very end of this passage, so welcome each other in the same way that Christ also welcomed you for God's glory. Welcome one another in the same way that Christ welcomed you. See, all of this is possible for us when we start from the same place, when we recognize that we have first and foremost been welcomed by Christ. (laughs) Christ has received all of us. He's brought us all into the Father's house and seated us next to one another at His table. He's brought us all together. And all around us, there are people who are not like us, who don't think the same way that we do, who don't have the same opinions, who don't share the same convictions, who don't even have maybe the necessary, the same theological beliefs about, you know, minor things within Christian history and theology. But all of us have one thing in common. We were all invited to the table by grace. None of us earned our seat. None of us earned our seat at Jesus' table by how deeply, how, how deeply held our convictions were, about how faithfully we followed them, or about how many more we had than other people, or about how much better or deeper or truer or harder or more sacrificial our convictions were than somebody else's. None of us earned our seat at His table. We were all invited and welcomed by grace. We didn't earn our seats. And so the truth is that when we receive Him, we ultimately also receive one another. And when we place our faith in Jesus, the family of Jesus comes right along with Him. When we accept His invitation, He then invites us to accept one another. To accept one another without letting go of our convictions, without asking others to let go of theirs. But to walk in love toward one another to be brothers and sisters in Christ, to let God be God, to pursue peace rather than picking fights, and to build each other up rather than try to trip each other up. So that when our life together can be looked at, people might see the goodness of Jesus being played out in our life together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.